Welcome to Escape the Earth. We are a sci-fi and fantasy podcast broadcasting from an undisclosed location within the San Antonio Public Library. We are supported by the library and by the San Antonio Public Library Foundation. So a big shout out to them. I'm Mary Elizabeth and my other crew members today are Alyssa. Hey everybody. And Tim. Hello. Today we are going to be talking about TJ Klune's book, The House in the Cerulean Sea. Before we get into that, though, we just want to warn everyone about a couple of things. First, there will be spoilers. We go into this assuming that you have read the book, and so we aren't going to tiptoe or stutter step around anything. If you haven't read the book, hit that pause button, go read it, and come on back to us. Part of our goal is to encourage people to read the books, and we truly believe you'll get more out of the discussion if you've read the book. Second, this is geared towards adults. We're not potty mouths or anything, but sometimes the subject matter will not be for youngling ears. So as a quick sidetrack, we are all recovering from our Pop Madness recording sessions, which by the time this is published, I hope everybody will have heard some of what we did there. Are you guys recovered from Pop Madness? I think so. It took me a good day to kind of like, oh, okay. I'm, I'm back. I'm back to the living. <laughs> it was very hot. <laughs> yeah, well, you were outside all day and we do live in Texas. And for those of you who do not live in Texas, Texas only has two seasons there. Well, I mean, you could say we have four, but it would be like summer one, summer two, summer three and fall. Various degrees of summer. <laughs> Yes, so uh, so Mary Elizabeth got to be outside for much of the day, and I, I imagine like you probably could have like sat in an igloo for about two hours after after everything was said and done, and still would have felt overheated. I did get a slushy afterwards. <laughs> what what flavor? Oh, the cherry limeade at the Sonic. We were able to find a Sonic that was employed enough to give us a food. <laughs> Oh, delightful. That is a challenge these days. It is. <laughs> but Pop Madness was wonderful. Really wonderful. It was a very exhilarating experience. It was exhausting. It was lots of people, more people than I'd seen in a long time. But it was super great. Great turnout. Wonderful to talk to people in the community. That is probably the most people I've been in a room with ex- at, you know, since COVID started. Like I have not been around that many people. Um, but, but it was nice. It seemed like everybody had a, had a really nice time and, and there, there was excitement, but it was all good excitement. Exactly. Yeah. There was, it was just really great to, yeah, to get in contact with the community like that again and to, to talk with people like strangers and I have to worry about like, you know, like we're all kind of comfortable with each other. We're like, hi, I'm me. Tell me about you. (laughs) Now we're going to have to start to beg our, our adult services department to get us into big Texas Comic-Con. Oh, yes, please. Yeah, that'd be great. So I'm going to talk a little bit about T.J. Clune because he's the author of The House in the Cerulean Sea, which is our selection for today. And T.J. Clune does have a website, it's tjclunebooks.com. However, I am going to go through his um, Wikipedia page. And so his name is Travis John Clune. He was born in 1982. He's an author of fantasy and romantic fiction featuring gay and LGBTQ characters. His fantasy novel, The House in the Cerulean Sea, which is what we're discussing today, is a New York Times bestseller and winner of the 2021, it's the Alex and Mythopoic Awards. Uh, Clune has spoken about how his sexuality influences his writing. His novel, Into This River I Drown, won the Lambda Literary Award for Best Gay Romance in 2014. Clune was born in Roseburg, Oregon. He was eight years old when he first began writing fiction. His young work in poetry and short stories were the first to be published. Clune's writing influences include Stephen King, Wilson Rawls, Patricia Neal Warren, 
Robert McCammon and Terry Pratchett. Clune has been open about his lived experiences with asexuality, queerness, and neurodiversity and how they influence his writing. The historical absence of these communities in fiction has motivated Clune's uh, character development choices. His love of writing began as a child in the 80s. He would write fan fiction about his favorite action adventure video game, Metroid. Later in his childhood, he began writing original stories. His teachers would always encourage his work, saying that they look forward to seeing his writing in bookstores one day. Clune's first book, Bear, Honor, and the Kid, was published in 2011. And due to the prevalence of pen names in male-male romantic fiction, he wrote under the pseudonym T.J. Clune. His motivation for his first book came from realization of the poor, often offensive stereotypes of queer characters within stories. He wanted to be able to write a novel that had an accurate representation of queer relationships that were not stereotypical. Instead, they were seen as relatable and positive. In 2013, he wrote the magical realist novel, Into the River I Drown, um, while processing the death of his father. It's a supernatural tale of grief and love in a small town, and it won the 2014 Lambda Literary Award for Best Gay Romance, which we already said. Um, other novels include the Queer Werewolf series, Green Creek, and the queer superhero series, The Extraordinaries, the contemporary romance, How to Be a Normal Person, and the comedic fantasy series, Tales from Verania. The House in the Cerulean Sea is Clune's first standalone novel. It was published by the Macmillan Tour imprint and was partially inspired, inspired by the 60s scoop where, Canadian, where the Canadian government removed indigenous children from their homes and placed them with unrelated white middle-class families. Seeing similarities in this event take place in current-day Southern United States, Clune felt a need to write a story celebrating children's differences and to show the positive effects of giving children a safe and supported place to be themselves. The book is about a man named, well, actually, that's going to leak into Alyssa's part. So we'll, we'll, we'll just let Alyssa pick up from there and do the synopsis. Thanks, Tim. So here's what I've got for y'all today. Linus Baker is an ordinary middle-aged caseworker at the department in charge of magical youth, Dichemy for short. He spends his days visiting government-run orphanages and preparing meticulously detailed reports before going home to his solitary, quiet life with his records and his devious cat Calliope. In an unexpected turn of events, Baker is summoned by extremely upper management and sent on a classified assignment to Marcius Orphanage where the children are a little more magical than usual and a lot more dangerous. In the course of investigating the orphanage, Linus Baker investigates his own heart in a story that ends up being a heartwarming exploration of acceptance and finding family in the most unlikely of places. That's a very good summary. And it's a little bit to the point because this is a very character-driven book. Um, there is lots of character development because mm -hmm. I, and reading, you know, what Clune's motivations are, uh, that, that makes perfect sense because he wants each character to be seen as an individual. Um, they are more than the sum of their parts. Uh, to quote the book. So yes, it, it does feature a, a gay man as the main character, but that's not overt in the, in the novel. It, it does, you're not like, it, it's not the point of emphasis. Right, yeah, I was... I was wondering like what this book was going to be about because you know like it's the house in the cerulean sea also in the cerulean sea it's maybe near the cerulean sea <laughs> um, but I was like oh no there's an orphanage what's going to happen uh, but it was a really I wouldn't say well it was a quick read but it was more of like 
like a soft sort of romance. It reminded me sort of Love Comes Softly, which I haven't read in years. I read it when I was a child, but, but it was like a very sort of like, oh, this was like a gentle romance. It felt like um, it kind of also reminded me of Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children <laughs> because of the aspect of protecting magical children. So that that's funny because, uh, you know, I heard some debate long ago about the song sitting on the dock of the bay and people saying that, well, the dock is actually in the water, so you can't be sitting in the, um, technically on the dock of the bay because then you'd be in the water. Right. You're that was the, the essence of the argument. <laughs> I, might, I might be incorrect about the terminology, but I believe... I that was the essence of the argument. So, so can the house really be in the sea? Is it in the sea? I would. I kind of like when I first. I was thinking, oh, maybe it's like since it's magical, maybe it actually is in the sea. <laughs> I got hung up on that for some reason. <laughs> but, uh, but, and also then towards the end, they kind of say cerulean often. <laughs> like that's, I get it. <laughs> it comes up quite a bit. It does. It does. But I thought it was a really nice read so the the thing about this particular house is and it, is that it's sort of got the the highest classification of of magical children in it like they they have powers that most other magical children do not have or there's something specific about them that makes them special and so basically it's located on this island out in the middle of, well, not really in the middle of the ocean because there is a coast right there and there's a town there and everybody in the town receives a government subsidy to keep quiet about this orphanage that is on the island just off their coast. And... So there's a variety of children there. There's one child, Sal, who can transform into a Pomeranian whenever he wants. And uh, what's special about Sal is, unlike other shapeshifters, he can transform other people into Pomeranians with a bite. I heard him described as a were Pomeranian. A were Pomeranian. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> I love it. So, um, and Saul, Saul is, has been through many, many homes at this point. And so he's sort of very soft-spoken and, um, and not, not very sure of himself. Um, then you have Talia, who is a gnome who is 243 years old, she likes to point out. So, uh, but which in gnomes is still considered to be a child because they're not mature until they're 500 years old. And she's very big on gardening, of course, and burying bodies in her garden. And she has a delightful beard. And a delightful yes, beard. You can't forget the beard. <laughs> um, let's see, who else do we have? We have also Fee, who is a forest sprite who was found with her uh, dying mother or her mother was deceased already and they were going to remove her to and the child the magical child welfare system and the workers who came to remove her were all turned into apple trees which they had to find another sprite to come and undo it so she has a lot of power that uh, more more power than is normal in sprites, at least in this universe. Yeah, I think she was the most she most powerful that they had seen in in a long time. And then there's a wyvern named Theodore who has a whole a horde that he keeps under the couch, because uh, wyverns are like little tiny dragons, and. Um, so his horde of dragons like to hoard gold and things. So he has one horde in the attic and one his super special horde is underneath the couch in the, in the living room. And nobody's supposed to know where it is, which means that everybody knows right where it is. 
And um, who am I missing from the children still? Oh, Chauncey, who is like a combination of a jellyfish and a sea cucumber with stalks for its eyes, kind of, I, I imagine his eyes kind of being like lobster eyes, just moving around. And, and he, <laughs> he leaves a trail of salt water wherever he walks and his only dream is to be the best bellhop ever which so cute i found that really endearing i love chauncey yeah it was just that it was so yeah so endearing it was so wonderful <laughs> and and the fact that he gets to be bellhop at the at the end of, uh, at the hotel on the mainland one day a week which you know what i have been some places and i bet that sea cucumber guy would be much better than most of the bellhops that I've dealt with in my in my lifetime. I like that he always wants a tip. Yes, <laughs> I have to be told, don't get a tip for complimenting. <laughs> yes, his little tentacled hand he holds out over and over again, <laughs> and he perfectly clears his throat. <clears> throat. I also like this part where he clarifies, "I'm a boy." <laughs> He clarifies who he is and Arthur's like pats him between the stocks and says, you can be whoever you want to be. <laughs> and so, and then there's, there's the, the one that causes Linus to faint. Linus Baker is our main character. He's the worker for the uh, child welfare system, the magical child welfare system. And um, he's sent on this secret mission to go evaluate this orphanage orphanage which is overseen by a man named Arthur Parnassus. And as he's waiting for someone to come pick him up from the train station, he starts reading through their files. And the first file is for a child named Lucy, who is not female. The name Lucy is short for Lucifer because he is the spawn of Satan. He is the Antichrist. <laughs> that word is not allowed. It's not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the file. It kind of reminded me of uh, Good Omens when he was introduced. He was like, yeah. <laughs> he's just a kid. I also thought of Good Omens. And Lucy is rather fond of proudly pro- proclaiming that he's going to like boil your insides eventually, but as you get to know him better, he he actually really is just a six-year-old with all the power of hell behind him. He also has a huge affinity for the day the music died and records. He does. He that's like his favorite thing are are the singers who have who have died. And so he has a pretty impressive record collection and uh, knows a wide variety of songs. Um, So Linus Baker really lives this sort of dull gray life and that is driven home a lot at the beginning of the book. I really kind of picture it, and here I go with Harry Potter references, like working in the Ministry of Magic, everything is dark and all the, there are rows of desks, you don't even get you know like cubicles you just get a desk and i kept picturing a classroom like in grade school (laughs) with all the desks pressed together where you can like barely squeeze between them yes (laughs) and and that's what it's like it's always raining in the city and you know he um, that was a metaphor but no it's like always raining (laughs) what's like what is happening here is nobody like what's going on this shouldn't be happening no they live in Seattle. I, <laughs> Seattleites, please don't hate us, but that's what we hear about you in in Texas is that it rains nine months of the year there. And so when we talk about Seattleites, we're just jealous because it doesn't rain nine months of the year here. Um, right? Right? <laughs> Take care. Um so anyway, what are your thoughts? Uh, there, there is a big social justice aspect to this book. 
Um, so I guess we could we could dive in there. We could talk about the child welfare system. What do you want to talk about today? <laughs> Deafening silence. <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about the um, the job, the end first. Okay. I did say that, didn't I? So, so at the end of this book, this is the first the first spoiler alert is that uh, Linus does after his month long jaunt in the uh, at the house in the Cerulean Sea at the uh, orphanage or Marsyas. Right. Yeah, he uh, sent to this to the to the island. I don't know if we explain. He was sent to the island because the. What are they? The extreme upper management, which I thought was really funny, but like sent him next. They went like kind of like a spy over there, and so he's so straight laced that you know that he there's no way he's he's a definite company man, and he's he's not gonna. So they trust him to go and kind kind of spy on them, see what's going on. But but yeah, things things change while he things change for him while he's over there. Yeah, he's, he's conducting sorry go no you he's conducting an investigation of the orphanage as a caseworker but he's gone to a level four classified orphanage with the, these dangerous children and he's only given knowledge on a need to know basis which is why he doesn't look at the files until he gets very close to the island um i lost my train of thought <laughs> oh no <laughs> and they are dangerous I mean, they yeah. are they are dangerous kids, uh, you know. In, in most cases, they'll either be a danger to themselves or those around them inadvertently. Right. We're introduced at the beginning. He's he's investigating an orphanage where a little girl threw a chair at a boy, and he and she broke his tail. And I had to read that a couple of times. Like, wait, what? <laughs> what? She broke his tail, but yeah, this little boy has a tail. So those are what he's used to, and it was like an argument, and you know she got a little out of hand. And but at, when he's leaving that specific or- orphanage, um, the 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 children are playing with each other, and they're coloring each other. They're coloring the drawing on the cast, and so that they're so he knows that there's no malice with the with them. And there's no need to close down the orphanage because he has closed down other orphanages where he's found. Um, cruelty being enacted on the children right so he's investigating marcia's orphanage to see if there's anything strange or untoward or inappropriate going on at the orphanage to find out whether it needs to be closed down or not so he he doesn't look at the files until he's almost there but i mean his life before is very droll but he does he does care about the kids I mean they they do make that point at the beginning even if he sort of appears like he doesn't want anybody touching him or anything like that he he is concerned about the child's welfare um, but he only will look at it from that standpoint uh, you know when even when he chose to close places he he considered that the end of his involvement and he never called it up on well what happened to them afterwards um and so the the first thing that really changes is when he gets this assignment to go to the island of marsyas um you know he he had um on his desk this mouse pad that said don't you wish you were here and it was a picture of a sea and you know an island maybe a palm tree and um but at the end of the story, uh, after he's gone, he's spent his month there, he's evaluated, he's changed, and I think for the better, and we'll talk about that too. I mean, he's, he's, he has been changed by his experience there. Um, he goes, he gives his report to extremely upper management, and you know they are not happy with his report, but his report is that the orphanage should stay, that it is a necessary place for, for these children and that it's not just an orphanage. He wants to drive home the point that this is their home. 
this is where they live this is where they see themselves and they ask him you know would you leave the other children in a locked room with with lucy by by themselves and he says undoubtedly i would i would leave myself unconscious in a locked room with them uh, you know um and then he goes back down and he doesn't hear anything for for several days um and then the person who you think is the secretary for extremely upper management comes down to see him and gives him his report back and it's he finds that his request to keep the orphanage open has been approved and she gives him a kiss on the cheek and walks away and then he quits his job and he has this wild fantasy about standing on his desk and declaring himself commander and saying you all need to follow me in this sort of uh, jerry Maguire moment where then only one person follows jerry Maguire out and he takes the goldfish with him um but i thought it'd be fun to talk a little bit about our quit your job stories and we want you to write us with your quit your job stories um, so our email is sappleescapetheearth at gmail.com. And if we like your quit your job story, then we'll put it on the recording for next time. I'll tell, I'll tell a little bit of a story just to kind of inspire others to, to write in. Uh, I, I, although I don't know how inspiring mine is. I, know, I don't have a grand, I quit my job. <laughs> I, just, I was working at a shoe place. Uh, a friend had gotten me the job. Um, and you have like you, you're there's like a nine month probation, and if you're there for longer than that, then the person who brought you in they get a little they get a little kickback for for bringing in somebody. <laughs> so I waited till like the day after my nine months, and I quit because I wanted her to get money, <laughs> and I hated it so much. I bought too many shoes. All my paycheck was going back to that store for shoes. <laughs> But by then I had already started working at the library, so I didn't need to have two part-time jobs. <laughs> so, Alyssa, what's your quit your job story? Oh gosh, um, I was working in a restaurant. I did a lot of that when I was fairly young. And one night we were working with somebody that we thought was a new weight person. And it turned out the next day that we found out that that new weight person was actually going to be the manager in charge of all the weight people and that she was a plant to see how the training program was going. And that for me was the final straw in a series of abuses at this location. And so the next day when it was time for me to go into work, I called and I said, hi, I'm not coming into work today or ever again. Okay, wow. thanks. Bye. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, but, good for you for sticking out for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is very shady. Like, I mean, really? Really? I mean. It was pretty low. That That is low. I, I worked in a, in a restaurant that is no longer open. And I had uh, one of the managers there tell me to take the uneaten bread from one table that I left and put it back in the bread warmer. Oh no. Oh heck no. Oh that's horrible. No, no, no. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's not happening. I just <laughs> threw it away. But um and I left that job, but for other reasons, not that. I do have uh I have a better like getting fired story than I have a quitting story. I used to work for a fast food place. I'm not going to name which one. Uh, but I was once required to play a very rotund purple character, uh, you know, sort of like a mascot. And I got punched in the nose by a Boy Scout. It's not very Boy Scout-ly. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's horrible. He, he grabbed on the mask and he said, I can see you in there. And I said, no, you can't. And he said, yes, I can. And they punched me in the nose. <laughs> Oh, oh, maybe so because terrible. you lied to him. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe because you were that creepy purple figure. <laughs> Mascots are interesting. They, they're just, they scare some kids because, and I thought about it, 
Like they're, they're just these huge, it's like their stuffed animals have gotten too large and now they're like in my face. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> I can see why they'd be intimidating for children. <laughs> so I, at that time I had fairly long hair and I always kept it up in a, you know, in a ponytail and tucked it under my hat and hairnet. And our boss wanted to take everybody who was graduating high school out for, for uh, breakfast. And that was the first time he'd ever seen me out of uniform. And so I got a call before my next shift that I needed to cut my hair or not come in. And, so unreasonable. And I chose to not come in. Well, yeah. I mean, it hadn't been a problem until, what? That's ridiculous. Right. He had, I mean, I've been there for over a year and he'd never God. seen it. But, you know, and then, you know, I started dating a girl about two weeks later and she wanted me to get her haircut. I did it. No problem. <laughs> That was, was on your wrong, own terms. The wrong motivation <laughs> for the for the original ask. <laughs> if anybody has ever like watched the news about the child welfare system or has done any history on the research of you know what happens to children when they're taken from their cultural group and placed in an unrelated group um what the outcomes are it, it's it's really not very cheery and so the difference with the marsias orphanage versus other orphanages is that marsias is run by another classified magical being um, and that's Arthur Parnassus. He's a phoenix. And so when Linus Baker gets there, he's not really sure what he's going to find. He's only read one file, and that's about the child Lucifer, Lucy for short. And that scared him so badly that he fainted on the train platform and then couldn't look at any other files. Um but let's talk about what he finds when he gets there. Who's the the first person he encounters is the child known Talia. Yeah, he, his is, cat has run away, so he has to go because he brings his cat. He brings Calliope, which I was a little bit worried about when originally. Like you're going for a month, you better take your cat. <laughs> so don't leave him with the neighbor who wants to, who's worried about her squirrels. <laughs> so really worried. So she gets away and runs into the garden and and. It sets up a nice echo later on in the book for when he does come back. And, and so so the, the they find they find the cat together, him and Talia, once he introduces himself to her and they get to and she threatens to to bury him in her garden because she thinks that he probably would be good for fertilizer. <laughs> She also warns him not to let Lucy find the cat because oh, yeah. you know how Lucy is with animals and because um, that was it was oh I just love how they kind of like like they want to scare him away. <laughs> oh yeah, they're testing him like yeah. any group of children, mm -hmm. as you know, because you've worked with children, especially yeah. the uh, especially in that tween age group, teen yeah. age group, they're starting to test you. Oh, absolutely! They when test you come into their domain. Yeah, it's pretty great how, how, yeah, these are just kids. They're just kids. <laughs> they're kids being their, kids. In all of their glory, they're kids, yeah. <laughs> Despite their interesting and unusual magical uh, aspects, they are very much just children. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and that's driven home, too. Like, in this universe or in this world, you know, Dicomi, which is the department in charge of magical youth, uh, has all these posters up. You know, if you see something, say something. They want all magical children and creatures to be registered. And so there's a lot of division um, and, and a lot of fear between these groups 
just because they simply don't know each other. Mm-hmm. But not just fear. There's also implication that the government is trying to harness the powers of these peoples, whether they're children or adults, and leverage them for their own means. Although that never gets described in great detail, like how they want to leverage the beings, but it is hinted at many times. Right. What happens to them after they leave? Did you ever check it out? Uh, So the, the culmination of this is that in the town, which is populated by normal people, the, the inhabitants of the island, they don't go into the town. One person, uh, the sprite who, who is sort of the mistress of the island. Zoe Chapelwhite. Zoe Chapelwhite, right. She, she goes in town, she does the shopping, she picks up things when they need them. Uh, no one else really goes into the town. Um, Arthur Parnassus keeps all the children on the island and the mainlanders, they don't go to the island. And so for several years, there's just been this buildup of, of resentments. And the only thing that's sort of kept it in check are the government checks that come in for the mainlanders. To, they're, they're essentially paid to keep quiet because it is a classified orphanage. Um, but that doesn't stop the resentment from growing. And periodically you hear stories about the mainlanders sending rafts over with messages stapled to them saying, go away, we don't want you here, these sort of things. And um, Linus, of course, is not magical, but he is able to see that the kids are just kids. And through his time with them, like they enjoy doing make-believe and having adventures and they each have their own little interests and, and things. And uh, he becomes rather insistent that like, you can't, you can't teach them how to handle the world by keeping them out of the world. Uh, sooner or later, you're going to have to introduce these two groups because they're going to have to get along. And so, he forces Arthur to take the, the children on an outing. And what um, what did you guys think was going to happen there? I got a little worried. <laughs> I, there, there was no huge anxiety for me uh, reading the book, what, worrying about any overarching evilness that would happen. I don't know why. I, I don't know if it was just maybe... Um, Linus's take on how you know when he's closed down orphanages that were cruel to children and he's made sure that children are safe and and maybe that made me feel like okay well he's gonna take care of everything (laughs) Um, so I was a little worried like to see what kind like for the children to for them to get hurt um, emotionally by anything that the that the mainlanders would do to them so I wasn't worried about the kids getting out of hand I was worried about the island the, the mainlanders being cruel and how that would affect the children and how that would, what they would take from that. And that, which was like, okay, well, these, it just, that, that was my worry. Um, I also liked Linus being stuck with Talia and Lucy who can feed off of each other. And he's like, no, they're too much of a handful. (laughs) That that made me (laughs) laugh. I mean, there were several times when I chuckled out loud (laughs) with, with how, the the position that Linus got put in several times and he's just like no what was me (laughs) I'm like no or like how how they would um go after him to to rile him up um yeah Yeah, so so when they go into town Lucy's like I want to go to the cemetery and dig up dead bodies and Talia's like let's go to the gardening store and he kept saying that out loud (laughs) and there are times that I was reminded of like of like taking care of my my nephew and niece and and they would just be like like getting out of hand i was like okay guys calm down <laughs> stop stop doing that we're in public <laughs> we're going home <laughs> your moms are gonna take care of you now no 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 we promise <laughs> all right so it's like you know things like that you're reminded of like oh no taking these kids out in public now oh god <laughs> i have to take care of them stop pulling in two different directions <laughs> um, so yeah, my my greatest worry was 
the the mainlanders and the prejudices they had they were direct they were they were you were already seeing directed towards the children without the children even being on the being there with them right so on their on their way to the cemetery i'm making air quotes here because they're not going to the cemetery at all they go to the gardening store because Talia, the gnome, is super into gardening. She has a great garden back at uh, the orphanage. And she um, she wants to look at the, the spades and shovels and things. And, and she ends up bonding with the shopkeeper there over, over the gardening. And it's a very fortunate thing because the shopkeeper turns out to be the mayor of the town also. And so Talia and the shopkeeper, you know, bond over, over this discussion that they have about a hand spade. And so it, it turns into a very wonderful thing. And then they also go to a record store where Lucy bonds with the record store owner. J-Bone. Uh, J-Bone, right. <laughs> and, uh, he, was, and, he was such a good, funny, funny <laughs> character. He was just so easygoing. <laughs> so high. <laughs> yeah. And I like where, so this is the exchange of them talking about their dads. Yeah, Lucy's eyes shifted. My dad's not around. Deadbeat, J-Bone says. You can say that. He just has a lot going on. Oh, man, I get that. My dad doesn't think I'm doing anything with my life, you know? Thinks that I should be doing more than just the record store. Lucy was scandalized. But, but the record store is the best place ever, right? He wants me to be a personal injury attorney like him. Lucy pulled a face. My real dad knows lots of personal injury attorneys. Trust me when I say you're better off here. <laughs> this is so great. The dialogue in this book was really great. There was uh, later on, uh, we can come back to it, that where there's a, um, a crowd forming at the who went to go over to the island and confront i guess the children and they're like we want you gone we want the house gone we want the island gone and they're like wait you want the island gone how how would you do that uh well it was just like a lot of dialogue that made me go yes <laughs> what's going on there? it was just really cool. yeah this book is humorous it's charming it's it'll give you all the feels like i don't know how many times i got the feels in this book I felt like there were so many scenes where I'm like, oh, there's oh, a yeah. poignant moment where they're making this heartwarming point. It's very much like a, yeah. it's a gentle read, but mm -hmm. it's also, uh, oh gosh, it's emotional. It is. It was really good. It was a really good read. Like I said, it wasn't like too fast, like so fast paced and oh my gosh, I have to find out what happens. It's more of like, oh, I want to, I want to join them on their journey. <laughs> I wanted to join the, the book. Uh, cast you know it was a really nice like you said gentle read so we're all moving to an island soon yes oh please sounds delightful <laughs> um but but you're right i mean there's on this excursion also to the mainland they they encounter a very prejudiced ice cream shop owner ice cream shop owners it does you no good to be prejudiced you will just lose business because everybody loves ice cream. Um, so Sal, who tends to turn into a Pomeranian when he gets scared, uh, they have this interaction with the ice cream shop owner and Sal turns into a Pomeranian. Then the mayor shows up and offers to serve everybody ice cream and to cancel the lease on the ice cream shop owner. Um, Saul, uh, Linus takes Saul into the bathroom to try and get him to calm down and transform back into a boy. Uh, so he has to gather up his clothes and Linus tells Saul it's not fair. Linus said, staring off into nothing the way some people can be. But as long as you remember to be just and kind, like I know you are, uh, what those people think won't matter in the long run. 
Hate is loud, but I think you'll learn it's because it's only a few people shouting, desperate to be heard. You might not ever be able to change their minds, but as long as you remember you're not alone, you'll overcome. Which I thought was good advice. Oh, that was like, yeah, it was so great. It was such a good read. It was such a good point made. Mm -hmm. And it's a good reminder that hate is just a few voices shouting the loudest voices, you know, because sometimes those voices seem so overwhelming in the world. It's good to remember that there's a lot of great people that are willing to be open and, and help. You know, it, re- it reminds me of the whole Mr. Rogers, you know, where are the helpers look for the helpers. Yeah. Um, I also liked what Saul wrote, wrote and read in front of the class because he's, He's very shy. He's he's large, but he's shy. And when he gets scared, he turns into the Pomeranian, the were Pomeranian. Uh, but he did the the first one of the first class Linus attended. He he had written and read this this little like piece of poetry, and it was I am I am but paper, brittle and thin. I am held up to the sun and it shines right through me. I get written on and I can never be used again. These scratches are a history. They're a story. They tell things for others to read, but they only see the words and not what the words are written upon. I am but paper. And though there are many like me, none are exactly the same. I am parched parchment. I have lines. I have holes. Get me wet and I melt. Light me on fire and I burn. Take me in hardened hands and I crumble. I tear. I am but paper, brittle and thin. Yeah, I agree. That I and I and I like how they that poem because I think it's when they when he first has like a class with the kids in that first week, and they and it's referenced several times in the book with um, Theodore keeping a piece of it in his and under his in his hoard under the the couch and um with and then linus reciting it again at the end of the book when he comes back because it was just it was a really great through line for the book to to hold on to and there's a couple of say there's a couple of those through lines throughout the book there's a lot of repeated motifs um, they talk about fire a lot and setting things on fire. There's the whole wish you were here. Don't you wish you were here line. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lots of repeated motifs. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes. It was um, really wonderfully crafted, this book. And um, yeah, I, I like the relationships between all the all the kids. I mean, and and Arthur Parnassus, they are very much a family. Well, yeah, like what what you were getting to in the in the ice cream parlor when Sal gets scared and and turns into a Pomeranian. Lucy defends him and says, "That's my brother," (laughs) and that's that connection is finally clicked in for Linus. I think that these this is a family. And yeah, then this is a home, not a orphanage. Well, and even so, even Lucy is prone to nightmares. And when Lucy has nightmares, those around him tend to end up with seeing those nightmares come alive in the house. And um, for that reason, Lucy's Lucy's room is what used to be Arthur's walk-in closet. And so that way Arthur can get to him quickly from his own bedroom because it's it, his, his nightmare realized is, is quite scary for those in the house around him. Like the furniture starts levitating, you know, the, the wood, the floors starts to warp and bend and, um, 
but even with all of that going on, things flying around, like the children know they have their routine. When Lucy has a nightmare, they go, they gather in the center of the living room and they are all steadfast. He will not hurt us. None of us have ever been hurt by this. Mm -hmm. Um, And they even are able to defend him against Linus because because they're still not sure if they can trust him and they're like no he's he would never hurt us he's he's never gonna hurt us he's never hurt us before there because and he realizes that they're defending him because they they're worried about him even when they're scared it's really great yeah right and the first thing you know like when when they finally get uh lucy to wake up and snap out is like okay go go tell the others that they can go back to bed They'll also want to see that you're okay. And, um, you know, so even though he, he is that and he does have sort of this, this dark past, there, there are a lot of hints that, you know, he may, he may not be the end of the world. Uh, he, there, I feel actually, despite his parentage, that there's some hopefulness for him to break free of that. He has a choice. And, uh, and clearly uh, staying where he is, uh, it's the whole nature-nurture question, which they, they do reference in, in the book. Like, you know, uh, what matters more, your, your genetic makeup or how you're raised? And uh, there are pro- proponents on both sides. I've always thought that it was you know, well, it's both things, you know, both things contribute. There's Uh, also discussion of your intrinsic nature or like the intrinsic nature of humans. You know, humans aren't just evil. They aren't just good. Like a person is a mix of things and can, and some of that is based on the experiences that they have. And some of it is based on what other people tell you you are. So like the example of Chauncey, Chauncey is told his entire life that he's a monster and he's told that so much so that he hides under the bed and he still has this habit that he's trying to break of hiding under the bed because he saw monsters hide under the bed and they scare people. But that's so contrary to his true nature, which is to be like helpful to people, which is why he wants to be a bellhop (laughs) that um, he but he has to overcome this burden, this idea that's been put on him by other people outside of him so he's has to read you know has a struggle of rejecting this external idea and i think that that's a struggle that that happens in the world with humanity right we yeah the idea of societal pressures being put on people the idea of like you know women are supposed to be one thing and men are supposed to be another thing and breaking through those gender norms is like can even be seen through chauncey and his idea of breaking that the expectations of what society has put on him mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah and it extends to all different types of groups who have you know external ideas put on them exactly yeah mm-hmm. so i'm going to reference back to your job quitting story Alyssa, and ask you is miss bubblegum a plant is she a plant right there was a little bit of a sense of like when she because she came down and told him She's and something, there was a, she's there was something a more of, than you than you think she is. Like I kind of thought, oh, maybe she's part of some sort of resistance and she wants to break down dichomy or something. <laughs> I'm not sure who she is. There is that hint of it where she goes back and says, I have to make a call. Yeah. But is it and, just gossip or is it something else? Yeah. Who is she making a call to? That's not really very clear. No. She could maybe, she could be. Maybe there's more. Maybe there could be more books. <laughs> I, there could be, especially with the way that she's like, she goes and kisses Linus at the end. Like she's clearly on his side. And I think, um, yes, yeah, she's clearly on his side. And after that whole scene, like you, you know, when he walked out of the office, I thought they're going to close it for sure. You know, like there's, there's because extremely upper management not a single one of them was happy with what he had to say but Um, he also throws a coup he remember he mails off all of this in secret information about all the 
wrongdoings that Daikami has done, he sends those off. And so the entire four people in extremely upper management, they all end up getting turned over because he's exposed them for abusing the system. Um, yes, there is that, but that happens. That happens after the fact, like he, uh, that that's after his meeting with them. Like there, yeah. there, there was an interim period of like three weeks or a month or something where, you know, some, something beside, behind the scenes happened more. And that's when he's doing his intelligence gathering to, to send that off. I, I got the feeling that, that Miss Bubblegum, like there's extremely upper management. I'm betting there's absolute management somewhere. Absolute total upper management. You think she's part of it, I, or I she think, is it? I think she is it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the power she, behind the throne, right? Could be. And so, so her thing is just a, uh, you know, just like the plant who was supervising the wait staff as, as a, uh, as a waitress themselves. Uh, she was the penultimate upper management person. Ah, oh, so underhanded. Uh. <laughs> that, that would be awesome, right? Um, <laughs> devilishly clever. Uh, I don't know. Did we miss anything on this? We haven't talked about the, the romantic aspect, but I don't I don't feel like it's the the center point of the of the story. I mean. Yeah, I don't think it was either. It was just the the life of this group of people that have been brought together and how they interact and come together to to make a family. Um, Yeah, it's not the center point. It's kind of there underlying everything uh, because of Linus's awakening to to the world, how he comes out of this dark gray place and even the island, that's where like the, you, before you get there, the, the clouds start breaking and the sun comes out and, and he realizes his sunflowers at home are not as bright and colorful as the flowers on this island. Like his, all of his senses are awakened. Even his cat talks now, <laughs> not verbal words, but meows. The cat meows now and the cat never meowed before. She just purred, but it was a mean purr. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was this, uh, realization of family that was the center point for me of the story I would say also about lovability mm-hmm. that everyone is lovable I don't think that Linus sees himself as a partner as a lovable being he's just like solitary going about his work mm-hmm. and his res- following the rules and regulations and doing was- his responsibilities but he learns in his relationship with Arthur that he is lovable the same way the children are gaining that lovability from Arthur. So Arthur is just, he's, he precipitates that for a variety of people. Yeah, he was, Linus saw himself as unnoticeable, like even less than, I guess, a wallflower would be noticeable. He was comp- like, Miss Bubblegum was like, I've never, I don't, who are you? Like, I've never heard of you. <laughs> Where'd you come from, basically? He's very um, ordinary. Yeah. He's very ordinary, but Arthur Parnassus sees him as extraordinary him. in his ordinariness. Yes, he sees him. And yeah. there's a that theme comes over and over again in the story about really seeing people for who they are, their depth, mm-hmm. their dimension, and loving them where they're at. It's very beautiful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you can see, I mean, I... I actually think that Calliope the cat was the first crack in Linus's facade because he's he's very lonely at the beginning. Like he he has one person that he talks to outside of work, and it's a person he doesn't even like. <laughs> his, She's so mean. <laughs> his neighbor Mrs. Clapper, who your cat was chasing my squirrels. Keep it out of my yard. Her name is even so appropriate with how she just claps at him all the time. <laughs> right um and you know everything's very dreary and the cat basically forced herself upon him um i have a cat that did that at home his name is severus snape johnson and like you know we were we were 
my my daughters were my older daughter was driving and you know they came home and he came bounding out of the bushes at them and so we were at the dinner table and and uh we hear them screaming outside something's in the bushes and uh you know oh it's a kitty and i was like okay well we are not bringing this cat in i'm putting my foot down cat's not coming in we're sitting down to dinner and all through dinner at the front door i was like just ignore it it will go away Mm -hmm. and now 10 years later he's still there daughter who who said like i'm not coming back in until you let the cat in she's moved out (laughs) but the cat is still there the cat is still there so i think calliope calliope was the first break in his facade i think you're right yeah and then um you know so when he gets to the island it's a it's a steady growth for him too because he's really sort of jumpy at the beginning and through them telling him that he was more he began to act like he was more does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely i think that adventure that first adventure that he went with the kids was the linchpin of him realizing that he is more because oh it was such a good adventure (laughs) it's so wonderful i love that scene that's my favorite scene in the book where talia slips her hand into linus's because she's scared of the cannibals i'm like oh god my heart just melts right (laughs) there yeah it was so great his connection with talia was really beautiful mm -hmm. yeah she and she she just loves and trusts him all of a sudden and that but that's the way it is with children you know you all of a sudden they they come to you they're like cats too i think (laughs) yeah (laughs) you just kind of be there and then they're like oh hi (laughs) that's that's how bonds are formed it doesn't happen all at once it kind of sometimes it can kind of sneak up on you yeah trust trust builds yeah yeah and love is kind of a surprise sometimes happens so, in unexpected places oh i love this book <laughs> so thinking about who you who you would recommend it to i kind of find his writing style to be almost like alexander mccall smith have you ever read any of his things? I have not. But Scotland he, Street. But he is a an author known for gentle reads as well. So I could see that. A very, very soft, like subtle sense of humor. And um yeah, so it, it kind of reads like that, of course, you know. If you're a very religious person, you probably would not like this. And if you were um yeah if you're somebody who wants like action all the time give me give me (laughs) that's not this either it's it's somebody who's like i just i just want to relax and read this is this would be a great sort of like vacation book especially you know since it's set on an island or like sort of real yeah relax your mind and stuff but you still get impact out of it it's very uplifting i noticed that a lot of people on goodreads enjoyed reading it during the the height of the pandemic as a as a kind of a heartwarming feel-good sort of thing in a in a dark time and there's not a lot of this kind of book in the fantasy and sci-fi genre it's kind of a um a new thing the only other book that i've read is also fairly recent in the the sense of it that it was um in the last 10 years and that's the long way to a small angry planet by becky chambers so if you liked this book or if you liked The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, I would recommend, that'd be a recommended read for those folks. Mm. Reciprocal recommendations. So um, I think we've covered everything. Uh, do you guys have anything else? Okay. No birds calling in the background this time. No mysterious thumbs. Well, there might have been one when my watch like that. Um, but um, so yeah, view our uh, book list, our reviews, and suggested reads that are on our Goodreads page. That's Apple Escape the Earth. 
And then if you want to write us with your quit my job stories, uh, sample escape the earth at gmail.com. Uh, I, I don't know why I like quit my job stories. I think it was that one JetBlue uh, airline attendant who, who popped the emergency ramp and slid down when he quit. You, you I haven't heard that. that. I'm going to have to look that up. Oh, yes. That's a good one. <laughs> um, and then uh, I, I definitely am not advocating quitting your job in this economy. But but anyway, if you want to write us, write us at sampleescapetheearth at gmail.com. All smushed together like one word. And uh, join us next month for our discussion of Six Wakes by Mer Lafferty. Mer Lafferty. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you Bye-bye. for joining us. Escape the earth. Escape the earth.